Let me take this opportunity to welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning, members of CBC and guests. Uh, hearty hello, welcome. I invite you to turn in God's Word to the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians. Uh, we are in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, let's hear God's Word together. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that according to your eternal plan, through the death and anguish of your son Jesus, you have made us clean in your sight. You have taken away our guilt that we might draw near. We praise you for the grace that you've shown us in reconciling us to yourself. We praise you also, Lord, for the grace you've shown us in making us members of the body of Christ, the church. Thank you that we belong to your people and have all the privileges and benefits of those who belong to your people. Father, we know that your glory and wisdom is displayed in the world through what happens in the church. And therefore, we ask, Lord, that you would be pleased to grant Christ Bible Church ever-increasing unity in the Holy Spirit. Grant our love for you to grow. Grant our love and commitment to one another to deepen, Father. Let us be quick to forgive. Let us be quick to reconcile with one another. Let our love for one another grow and deepen, not only for our joy, but that your glory might be more clearly seen in the world. Father, we pray that every facet of our life together at Christ Bible Church would be honoring to you and would display your character. Father, we pray that you would protect us from wolves in sheep's clothing, those who appear, Lord, to be on the side of righteousness and submission to Christ, but are in fact not. We pray, Lord, that your word would be purely and faithfully taught and sound doctrine would prevail both in the teaching of the church and that it would be lived out in our day-to-day -day experience. Work in our midst, we pray, and use your word, we ask this morning, to accomplish your purposes. Amen. 
Uh, I suspect that many of you, most of you, at one time or another, have spoken to an individual who has said, I don't need organized religion to have a relationship with God. I don't need the institutional structure of the church, the ecclesiastical machinery. Uh, I, can, I can have a relationship with God apart from the th church, thank you very much. If anything, the church gets in the way of a relationship with the Lord. And sometimes that kind of thinking filters even into the church, and Christians think that way. What really matters is my own personal relationship with the Lord. And the church is a, is a sort of spiritual luxury good, a bit like a Rolex, not strictly necessary, but nice if you have it, right? The church is optional, good, it's there, should probably go. But it's not perceived to be utterly essential to our walk with the Lord. Now, we need to uh, affirm that this is deeply unbiblical. And indeed, the passage we're looking at today shows us how radically unchristian and unbiblical that view is. To walk in fellowship with the Lord means walking in fellowship with his people. The two are intertwined, inescapably intertwined. So we will see this morning as we meditate on this passage, the primacy, the centrality of the church. I want us to, to note three things, especially as we look at this passage. Number one, I want us to see that Jews and Gentiles are united as one people in the church. Jews and Gentiles, that is believing Jews and Gentiles, are united as one people in the church. Two, the unity of the church displays the wisdom of God. The unity of the church displays the wisdom of God. And three, believers have confident access to the Father through Christ. Believers have confident access to the Father through Christ. So in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul gets ready to pray for the Ephesians and to tell them how he's going to pray for them. But having begun to start praying or say that he will pray, he digresses. Uh, so you notice if you compare verse 1 to verse 14, it begins the same way. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason I, Paul. Verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So even in 3.1, he's getting ready to start praying for the Ephesians. But then he says that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's actually a prisoner, but because of his allegiance to Christ, he is fundamentally Christ's prisoner. Uh, he is a prisoner on behalf of Gentiles or non-Jews. And that requires some explanation. What does he mean by the fact that he is imprisoned for their sake? And that's what triggers the digression which lasts from verse 2 to 13. In these verses, Paul talks about his ministry, especially his ministry to the Gentiles, the aim of his ministry. And then a secondary purpose of this section is to encourage these Gentile believers. Uh, they might have lost heart as they contemplated the, fa the fact that the apostle to the Gentiles, their apostle, is imprisoned and has been imprisoned for years. This may have been a source of discouragement to them. So in verse 13, he concludes by saying, do not lose heart over uh, what I'm suffering for you. Paul puts his anguish in the context of the plan of God and says, we need to take comfort from what God is doing through this. So he informs them and encourages them. He tells them that his stewardship, he has a responsibility from God to proclaim the grace of God, the grace, the unmerited goodness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. It is his calling to proclaim that, especially to the Gentiles. Now, he's not the only apostle to the Gentiles, 
But Paul is uniquely called to bring the good news of Jesus to non-Jews. And in that sense, his ministry is for the Ephesian Gentiles and for other uh, Gentile believers. And then he says that in this capacity as an apostle uh, called by God to proclaim the word, God has made known a mystery to him. It has been revealed, as he's already noted. He is the recipient of, of revelation that hasn't, as we'll see, been revealed in the past, he and other apostles. And he says that they can perceive the depth of his insight into that mystery by noting what he's already written. If they look at the first two chapters of Ephesians, they can see just how profound is his understanding of the wisdom that God, or, or the mystery, I should say, not wisdom, the mystery of Christ, um, of which he is a spokesperson. And again, this mystery was not made known in previous generations as it has now been revealed to the apostles and the prophets. The prophets here don't refer to Old Testament prophets as the context makes clear. It refers to those who, like the apostles, received revelation from God concerning the relationship of Jew and Gentile in the first century. Paul is saying that he and other apostles of God have received revelation that God has not given to his people in the past. What this means is Paul recognizes that as he pens a letter like his letter to the Ephesians, he's not simply writing just his opinion on this or that matter. He, as the apostle of Christ, is writing Scripture. This is what God does, incidentally, in the history of redemption when he shows up to rescue his people. When he rescues the Israelites from captivity in Egypt, he not only saves them, but then he gives them Scripture, the law, to interpret his salvation, to explain it. And so God's uh, work in Israel would lead us to expect that when he comes and brings about the climactic salvation in his son Jesus, there would be new covenant documents or scriptures which accompany that salvation. And that's exactly what we find in the documents of the New Testament. God's saving work for humanity crescendos in his son, and the final revelation given to mankind is given through the apostles and the documents that we have in the New Testament, which tell us about the crescendo of his salvation. Now, Paul has been speaking about a mystery that's been revealed to him, a mystery that's been revealed to the apostles, and we're wondering, what is the mystery? And thankfully, he tells us, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. The point here is that believing Jews and believing Gentiles have been brought together on equal footing as one people. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been set aside, and they are together the people of God. Now, in what sense was this a mystery? Something that you couldn't have uh, learned in the past, something that you couldn't have deduced, but God had to show it to you through revelation. I mean, there are clear instances in the Old Testament where God promises that the nations will come in and worship him with Israel. So in what sense then was this not known in the past? And I think the sense in which it wasn't known in the past is that Jews and Gentiles, it's not simply that they worship one God, it's that they worship one God on equal footing as part of one people. They are brought together, they're not kept separate. The Gentiles are not a step below as it were Israel or or Jews, they are one people. 
And in addition, part of the mystery as well is the idea that the law, especially in its civil aspect, governing Israel as a nation or a theocracy, and especially in its ceremonial aspect, the law has come to a close and the setting aside of that law wasn't clear in the Old Covenant. It has now become clear to the apostles. This is the mystery that has been made known. Bottom line, those who were once outsiders, far from God and far from his people, us, Gentiles, have been brought near. And with believing Jews, we are one people. We are fellow heirs, meaning that we have the same future, the same hope, the same inheritance. As we've seen multiple times in this letter, uh, believers have an inheritance. This is one of the great hopes that Israel had while it wandered in the desert because of its disobedience to the Lord. Israel pined for a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where everyone would sit under their fig tree and life would be good. And every Israelite had a place in that land. Well, now Paul is saying it's not just Israelites that have a land. God's people, both Jew and Gentile, have an inheritance in the world to come. We have the same future. We long for that day. That land isn't here yet, is it? We're still, as it were, in the wandering phase of our experience, but eventually the wandering phase gives way to Canaan. Eventually, we will be in the land of milk and honey. So the believing Gentiles and Jews have the same inheritance and future. They are members of the same body. They are part of the same spiritual organism. They are one people. God doesn't have two people. He has one body, Jew and Gentile. And Gentiles with Israel or with the Jews are partakers of the promise. The promise in view here is probably the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God makes to Abraham in the Old Testament. Uh, But the idea is that the believing Gentiles are now recipients of the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament. We can see this more clearly when we compare what he says in verse 6 to what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12, uh, when he talks about being strangers to the covenants of promise, the covenants of promise. So those who believe in Jesus Christ are, are recipients of the promises that God made to Israel, not simply Jews. Jews and Gentiles have been brought together in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Don't miss that phrase, in Christ Jesus. How is it that Jew and Gentile are brought together in the same body, have the same future? Well, they are united to one another because they are, in the first instance, united to Christ. They are in Christ, incorporated into Him, and as a result, they are united to one another. When a person places their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior... When a person trusts in Jesus, uh, there is a spiritual union that is formed between the believer and Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, we are, if you like, incorporated into Jesus. We are united to Him. Because of that union with Christ, we are therefore also spiritually united to the church, to those who are also united to Jesus Christ. So it is by virtue of this union and this faith in Jesus that we're connected to him and we're also connected to the body and we are brought together in one people. It is Jesus that makes us one. 
One of the things we need to recognize is as we, as we relate to one another as God's people is that our, the, our fundamental identity as God's people is not how much we make, what level of education we've attained, what our cultural background is. Uh, our fundamental identity is that we have been united to Christ. And when we look at each other, the fundamental thing we ought to see is not what culture this person's uh, from or skin color or background or level of education, as I've said, or anything like that. We need to see this person has been incorporated into Jesus Christ. That's the basis of our unity as the people of God. When we see that that's what we share in common, we will pursue unity. What I want to underscore, though, and what I want to clarify, this is very important. Uh, when Paul talks here about God creating uh, a body, unifying the Jews and Gentiles into one people, he is not saying, I want to be very clear about this, that he is creating a new and separate people completely distinct from Old Testament Israel. He's not, God's plan of redemption doesn't unfold in the Old Testament with Israel. And then it reaches a point in, in its history where God hits the pause button and he says, now I'm going to start a new people, the church, both Jews and Gentile. That's not what he's saying. That would be to miss the point of this passage. The point is that Israel is restored and renewed and is now comprised of both Jew and Gentile, such that Gentiles who were once on the outside of Israel are now recipients of the promises that God made to Israel. This is an important point to miss because often when people read their, their Bible, they see a, a strong discontinuity between the covenants. God had Israel back then, now they, he has the church now. But what we need to see in Paul's reasoning here is that he's emphasizing the continuity. The promises that Israel had those promises belong not simply to believing Jews, they also belong now to believing Gentiles. You see this, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 12, where we're told, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from what? Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, uh, you Gentiles, when you didn't know Christ, you were not only separated from God, you were separated from His people the commonwealth of Israel. And when you came to Christ, there's a sense in which you were incorporated. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household, household of God. You are no longer outsiders. You have been brought into the one people of God. You see this, for instance, also in Romans, where Paul talks about the Gentiles who were engrafted into Israel, who were connected to the root that is Israel. Romans eleven seventeen. If some of the branches were broken off, so he's saying, think of a tree, you have some branches, unbelieving Israel, disconnected from their root, from the people of God, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Notice what Paul is saying. Paul, Paul is not saying God is creating a completely new tree. God is saying he's taking the Gentiles and connecting them to the old tree, that is Israel, and they are, because, they are recipients of the promises 
of God. It's also instructive in this light to look at the Gospels. There's a fascinating moment in Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, verse 12, uh, where the, the Old Testament prophet Hosea is quoted, Hosea 11, 1. And in the original context, that passage refers to Israel. But it is nevertheless applied by Matthew to Jesus. Hosea says, or Matthew says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Original context, son is Israel. But the way Matthew uses it and applies it to Jesus, son refers to Jesus. What is he doing? Well, the, the idea is that Jesus is the truly faithful Israelite. And those who are incorporated into him are the people of God. Those who believe in Jesus constitute the people of God. The people of God are reconstituted around Jesus. It's not an accident that he has 12 apostles, 12 tribes. Right? Those who belong to Jesus, who are incorporated into him by faith, are the people of God and recipients of all of the promises of God in the Old Testament. One more passage. We can multiply passages because it's everywhere in the New Testament. Oh, this is something we want to see clearly. But look, for instance, at Romans chapter 2, verse 29. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. So who's the Jew? according to Paul in this passage. There's, there's a kind of radicalizing of the idea of the Jew. Who's the Jew? Those who have been inwardly renewed by the Holy Spirit. Those are the, the people of God and recipients of His promise. Now, quick qualification here. I'm not suggesting that there is no place for ethnic Israel in the plan of God. Romans 11 uh, seems to be clear that at some point before the second coming, ethnic Israel, physical descendants of Abraham, will be converted on a massive scale. I accept that. That's what Paul seems to say. Uh, but, but their destiny is not to have a distinct role apart from the church. They will be converted into the church. Now, what's the payoff? Well, first of all, it's glorious to see that uh, we new covenant believers receive all of the promises of the whole Bible. All of the good things that God pledged to Israel belong to us as well. And when we read the Old Testament scriptures, we shouldn't just read it as a story about those people. No, it's our story. And we should receive all of the lavish expressions of divine loyalty and love to his people as expressions of divine uh, loyalty and love to us. Take, for instance, Hosea 14, verses 5 through 7. God says to Israel, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Now, if you're reading it in a narrow sense, you go, oh, 
How great would that be if it were true of me? But again, it addresses Israel. I will be like the dude to Israel. But what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. You are a recipient of God's promises and these lavish ex expressions of loyalty. This is how God deals with you as his people. Is that how you approach the Old Testament scriptures? That these books and these promises they contain and the character of God in these books, these are ours and we are recipients of all of the promises that God makes there which are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and for all of God's people. It's interesting in this respect to look at what Paul says to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 and 2, he's writing to a predominantly Gentile congregation. So these are mainly non-Jews. And he says to these non-Jews, Gentiles, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses. So, Gentile audience, I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers, Israel, perished in, in, the, in the desert. Well, you see the implication. That's not just the history of Jews, this is our history as the people of God, and there's a lot to learn from it. So, big payoff here, the big implication is that all of the promises of God made to Israel, they belong to all of the people of God. Second implication, when we are reconciled to God, we are also incorporated into the body of Christ, his people. This is important to stress. Uh, people very frequently recognize that when I put my faith in Jesus, I am reconciled to God. My sins are forgiven and I have a relationship with him and praise God that's true. That's what scripture teaches. But that restored relationship with God can never be separated from membership in the people of God. When we trust in Jesus, we also become part of the people of God. We become spiritually united to them. If you believe in Jesus, you are a member of the church, the body of Christ. And that spiritual reality ought to be expressed tangibly by connecting to real flesh and blood people in a local church. This makes sense, right? You wouldn't say, oh, I have a spiritual relationship with Jesus, it doesn't matter how I live. No, precisely because you have a spiritual relationship with Jesus and are connected to him, you seek to obey him. Precisely because you are spiritually a member of the church, that you should actually join a church. You should actually connect to a real local body. What Paul shows us here is that the church is not an afterthought in the plan of God in our spiritual formation. As if we could follow Jesus and do well without any meaningful connection to the church. No, we follow Jesus in the context of his people. Our personal allegiance to the Lord is expressed in a corporate context. We live in community. We seek out the church. It is a priority for us. God intends to change us and renew us and bless us, not just as we walk as Lone Ranger Christians in isolation from the church, doing our own thing, right? God intends to bless us through the church. So for instance, how does God give us a deeper spiritual illumination, a deeper understanding of the gospel and his goodness? Well, Ephesians 1 teaches us he does that partly through the prayers of other believers for us. As Paul prays for the church in Ephesus, prays that God would open their eyes, God answers that prayer, and their spiritual perception of spiritual truth is deepened. And similarly, as they pray for him, for God to open the door to preach the gospel, God answers that prayer and makes his ministry effective. 
We need the prayers of our brothers and sisters. How do we, in this weary, difficult, demanding life, where do we find the stamina and the strength to persevere in doing good to the very end? Where do we find that strength? It's not as though we have a reservoir of inner power that we can draw on whenever we want. We are weak. We know we're weak. Here's what Hebrews teaches us. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is through the encouragement of our brothers and sisters that we are able to walk in love and good works. You notice how you can't just do that by yourself? You notice how you need the encouragement of God's people to continue walking in good works and persevering in it? We need the body, we need the encouragement that our brothers and sisters provide if we are to persist in doing good. And where do we go when, we're start, when we start to deviate doctrinally? When our thinking about God and his word begins to drift? Well, it's the church that protects us. Romans 15, 14, we can go to multiple places, but here's one. Paul writes, I, am myself, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. It's actually not that safe for you to just take the Bible, go off by yourself, and rethink Christianity from the ground up. That would be a foolish thing to do. Part of the way God keeps you from doctrinal error is by fellowship with the body. Brothers and sisters coming alongside of you and say, hey, I don't think that's what it says. I don't think you're reading that correctly. When you're drifting into sin, God's, one of God's main ways for bringing you back are other brothers and sisters. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. How does God help us when we're beginning to drift towards sin? Well, he uses the body to call us back to repentance, to call us back to obedience. We need that kind of correction. And finally, where do we receive correction when we need it? 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Sometimes we need to be pulled aside, don't we? We need to be pulled aside and we need to be told, hey, what you're doing is not right. Uh, and praise God for that kind of correction because there are many faults and failures that we can't see in ourselves. Sometimes we need a brother to come and take the, take the mirror and have us take a good look at the warts that are there. <laughs> Didn't know they were there. Where do we get that kind of correction so we can grow? It's in the church. The church, then, is not like peripheral to our walk with the Lord and spiritual growth. It is utterly central. Next thing, then, to note. The unity of the church displays the wisdom of God. Verses 7 uh, through 12. The unity of the church displays the wisdom of God. What I want you to notice in the first part of this section is the way Paul emphasizes the grace of God revealed in his calling. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So this, the proclamation of the good news about Jesus that defines Paul's life, that is an undeserved gift from God. Notice verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, and he says he's the least of all the saints, because what was Paul before he became a Christian? He was a persecutor of the church. He wanted to stamp out the church 
And so he recognizes that he has absolutely no right to be an apostle or anything else in the church. And yet, so lavish and great is the undeserved goodness of God that Paul was not only forgiven and accepted, but he was made an apostle. This grace was given. Here's what's intriguing about this. Where is Paul when he's writing these words? He's in prison. And he hasn't been in prison for a week or two. He's been languishing in prison for years. What is your response after you've been sick for like a week? It's the bug. It won't go away. You're dejected. Your spirits are down, right? You're tempted by self-pity. Uh, what's remarkable about Paul, even in his imprisonment, what, is, what he is astonished by is not by how hard his life is, but by how good God is. He's amazed by the undeserved and lavish mercies of God. There's this uh, old Johnny Cash song. And by the way, someone corrected me from the first service. Apparently, he didn't write this song. Somebody else wrote it, but I do know he sang it, so there's that. Uh, there's this Johnny Cash song that says that, that begins with something like, Why me, Lord? And you think you know where he's going. This is a lament. Why, why is life so hard? The song goes, Why me, Lord? What have I ever done to deserve even one of the many blessings you give? You think he's going to be astonished by his misery, but actually he's been astonished by how kind God has been. And this is, this is Paul's attitude here. Even in the midst of imprisonment, what strikes him is God has taken all of his blessings and he has lavished them on Paul's life, both in the forgiveness of his sins as a sinner and in his calling as an apostle. I wonder, when, when your life, when everything seems to be on fire, when you have zero control, when it's all just a big mess and your heart is broken and you are weary, do you speak like this? Is this your posture? Lord, I don't have any idea how I'm going to get out of this mess. I have no idea what the future holds. It's all one big question mark. But so what? My sins are forgiven. Jesus is my Savior. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. And I'm going to rejoice. And I'm going to be glad. Even as the, the chains in prison clink, I'm going to sing the praises of God and I'm going to praise Him. I'm going to delight in him and rejoice in God, my salvation. The truth is that most of us, what we are most aware of and astonished by is how miserable we are and how hard life is. Not the lavish and undeserved goodness of God. This kind of attitude doesn't just happen. Like maybe someday I'll be, one of, I'll be like Paul. It doesn't just spontaneously occur. It is a deliberate act of defiance. Yes, I may be... My heart may be broken, I may be ground down, but you know what? I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I have a reason to sing in the darkness. My sins are pardoned. I have peace with God, and I have every reason to rejoice today in the midst of uncertainty and pain and sorrow. That is what faith looks like in the darkness. It remains perpetually astonished by the mercies of God and doesn't lose heart. So it's the grace of God that is the source of Paul's ministry. He preaches the gospel because God has been gracious to him. But notice verse 10 gives us the aim or the purpose of his proclamation. He makes Christ known and he declares the mystery that he's already mentioned so that 
through the church the manifold, the multifaceted, multicolored wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is a fascinating verse. What he's saying is that as he preaches the gospel and Jews and Gentiles believe in Jesus and are unified in, that, in the church, their unity in the church speaks to the heavenly realms, the authorities, the angelic beings, both good and bad, about the wisdom of God. In other words, the unity of the church, the body of Christ, is proclaiming to the heavenlies how wise and glorious God is. It should make us rethink our view of the church. Our view of the church is way too small, isn't it? God's program for displaying his glory and wisdom to the angelic powers is what's going on here. As natural enemies, Jews and Gentiles, people from different backgrounds, are brought together in one body and learn how to live together in community and love one another and are united, his wisdom is being declared in the heavenly arena. The church is central then to the purposes of God. It's how he displays his wisdom to angelic beings and even in the world. You know what that means? If the church is central to the purposes of God, it should be central to our lives as well. To walk with the Lord means that we don't just pursue individual and personal growth, as important as that is, but we love the church. To love Jesus is to love the church and to want to see it progress and do well. When it triumphs, you're filled with joy. And when it struggles and, and has setbacks, you're filled with sorrow. Your heart goes up and down depending on how the church goes up and down. So how, how is it that we can make the well-being of the church central in our walk with the Lord? Well, I'm sure there are many things we can do in this regard, but let me give you a, just a couple. And let me reiterate what I've said before, and that is the importance and centrality of prayer. God accomplishes great things among his people as they intercede before him, for one another, for the church. And when I say pray for one another, yes, pray for individual members of the church. Start yesterday, if that's not a regular part of your prayer life, pray for the members of, of CBC. Bring their struggles and challenges before the Lord, but pray also for the, the church as a whole, for its different ministries that they would flourish, for the gospel to be faithfully and wisely taught to our children in Sunday school, that our children would know the Lord and believe. Pray for God's blessing on church leadership so that the elders of the church don't do something foolish and disgrace the name of Christ and hurt the church. Preaching, incidentally, is a corporate activity. I take some comfort in that. <laughs> it doesn't go well, it's not just my fault. What, what I mean is that the proclamation of the word is the responsibility of the whole church. All of us have a responsibility to bring before the Lord uh, the word ministry of the church and say, Lord, bless it. Use it to comfort people. Use it to bring the dead to life. Bless the proclamation of the word on Sunday morning. Bless the proclamation of the word in women's Bible study, men's Bible study, community group. Lord, use your word to accomplish your purposes. Pray for the church holistically as well as for individual members. Second thing, we live in a, in a culture that is commitment averse. We want to be self, we pursue self-fulfillment, happiness. We want to have as few entanglements as possible. We want to be relatively free. And so 
The thing about commitment is you lose freedom when you commit, right? If you commit to showing up on Sunday morning to teach Sunday school, well, by that much, you're less free to do with what you, know, what you want on Sunday morning. When you commit to meeting with a new believer twice a month on Friday night, well, that Friday night is no longer just yours to use. And so there's a natural tendency to say, you know, I, don't, I want to keep my life clear. I want to do what I want. Well, to love the church, to love Jesus, means that sometimes you sacrifice freedom for the sake of meeting the needs around you. We commit. Uh, and not always things that are easy or things that we naturally want to do. We commit to those things that need doing because we love Jesus and we want to help others. We're people who are ready to commit to the church to meet needs even when we lose some freedom. Which, by the way, are you really free if you have no commitments? If you're just doing what you want to do all the time, is that freedom? There's a sense in which that's, that's more suffocating, isn't it, to live selfishly than to be a kind of person who takes responsibility for others. That arguably is a fuller freedom. Third thing, just as we live in a commitment-averse culture, uh, we live in a correction-averse culture. What we would like is not correction, but affirmation. What we want from external authorities and leaders is not to be told how we're wrong. We want to be told how well we're doing. We want our schools, our workplace, our bosses, our teachers, pastors, we want, we want to be told uh, that we are doing what we should be doing. A few decades ago, if a woman had walked in immodestly dressed into a grocery store, uh, she would be the one who needs to, you know, course correct. Now, if you're the person who suggests to the immodestly dressed woman that she should course correct, you need to course correct. <laughs> That's the real evil in our world. Self-expression, self-fulfillment, that comes first. Anyone who wants to interfere and say, no, 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 don't do it that way, that's the villain. And what we need to recognize is that we need correction. We need some, for God's people to pull us aside, as I've said, uh, and correct us from time to time. Say, hey, this is not how you should be living or thinking. And in love for others, we should, from time to time, pull them aside and correct them. It's one of the basic ways in which the church remains healthy. And finally, let me add financial commitment. Now, thankfully, I can say this. We're not in a place of deep need at CBC, so that's, uh, that's good. Uh, but one basic way in which you exhibit your commitment to the church and the centrality of the church in your life is by supporting the ministry of the church financially. It's a basic responsibility that we have before the Lord. So what Paul clarifies here is that the church is central to the purposes of God and should be more central than it often is in our lives. Third and final thing to note then. Uh, up to this point, we've emphasized the horizontal aspect of the Christian life, our integration into the people of God. Final thing, though, I want us to note is the vertical aspect. Paul comes back to this in verse 12, and he says that in, in Christ... We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Pause and consider that for a second. We have boldness and access with confidence before God Almighty. This is stunning, especially as we consider that statement in light of the whole story of Scripture. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against the Lord, the gates of paradise slammed shut behind them, and they were cut off from the life-giving presence of God. They, were no, they could no longer dwell in his presence. 
When God, when God manifests his glory at Sinai and that cloud fills the mountain, there's a barrier that's erected to keep the Israelites from getting too close because, because if they get too close, they die. That's what happens when sinful men and women who have rebelled against the king draw near into his spotless and holy presence. They're consumed. There were Levites established in the tabernacle and in the temple to keep, not just keep the tabernacle sacred, but to keep people away from the presence of God. And in that light, what Paul says here is astonishing. Through the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we have been washed of all our defilement, all our guilt and shame, and through him, we now come boldly and confidently into the presence of God. The astonishing truth is that God delights in his people. God wants us to draw near, delights when we draw near, and is utterly for us. Through Christ, the gates of heaven have swung open, and God has opened his arms to us, and he has said, and says constantly, and says every day of the week and every moment of every day of the week, come, come, and come freely, and come confidently because of what Christ has accomplished. If you've ever had the experience, the unhappiness of spilling coffee on yourself on the way to work, this is a universal, I suspect. Maybe if you, you tea drinkers uh, may have it a little bit easier, I don't know. But you've got that, you start the day with that brown stain. And it follows you into every meeting. And you can only be half there, right? Because you're conscious about the fact that everyone's looking at the stain. And so the whole day, you're just half-heartedly engaging, brought low by the stain, right? You're, now, there's a sense in which I think that, that's what we are like in our approach to God when we look at ourselves, we see the stains, we see the weaknesses, and so we come not boldly and confidently, but with a certain reticence. He loves me, he loves me not. He's for me, he's for me not. Whenever we approach God on the basis of our own goodness, there isn't going to be confidence. There isn't going to be a sense of freedom, because we know how weak we are and how we fall short. The only reason we can have this kind of boldness and access is because of the perfect, objective, finished work of Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins. He took the judgment of God upon himself and took it away perfectly. And through his death, all of our guilt is taken away decisively. And it is on that basis and in his name that we approach God. And so, of course, we come confidently. The work of the Son of God is sufficient to take away sin forever. And knowing that the work is completed, we have boldness, boldness and access to the Lord. That should embolden our prayers. God wants to hear from us. He's not reluctant to hear from us. We should come confidently when we pray to the Lord. And we should also bask in the reality that God is for his people. In all things, he is for his people. And we should walk in the freedom that that truth engenders. Do you know the confidence that Paul is talking about? Is this the way that you are walking with the Lord? Do you have this freedom with the Lord? If not, look at Christ. See how sufficient and, his perfect, uh, and perfect his work is. And on that basis, know that you can approach God boldly. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, we are incorporated not only into the people of God, the church, but through him we have peace with God. Amen. Let's pray together.